Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute, about his new paper, Three Myths About Healthcare Reform. The paper uh, explains why controlling the rising cost of federal health benefit programs is critical to the nation's fiscal future, and it dispels three powerful myths that continue to get in the way of effective cost control. The paper is part of a series with the Concord Coalition called The Shape of Things to Come. And Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris will join that conversation. And then we'll have a follow-up discussion with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson about Steve's new issue brief on the budgetary implications of rising inflation. But first, let's begin with healthcare. Richard and I, welcome to Facing the Future. Hey, Bob. It's great to be here. Thank you, Bob. Uh, well, Richard, uh, great to have you back on the program again and uh, with another in the uh, uh, Shape of Things to Come series. Um, this one is about healthcare reform. And, you know, we've been talking about a lot of things recently on Facing the Future having to do with the economy. We haven't been talking about healthcare reform very much. And so I think a lot of people might be asking, why healthcare reform now? Why, why is this a good time to be talking about? Three myths of healthcare reform. Well, Bob, I mean, you're absolutely right. We haven't been talking about healthcare reform very much, but uh, I would uh, dare to make the prediction that we're going to be talking about it a lot more within a year or two. Um, we've been in the middle of running this uh, 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 enormous um, modern monetary theory experiment. Uh, it isn't called that name, but in effect, that's what it is. With federal budget, okay? With interest rates so low, we've been able to borrow hand over fist uh, without any thought to uh, uh, long-term budget constraint because borrowing costs, it's essentially free money. Well, that's coming to an end now. With inflation rising, the Fed's gonna have to raise rates. That's likely to hit the markets first, um, but it will. Uh, uh, with a lag, um, hit the budget and the fiscal policy debate um, because soaring debt service costs all of a sudden will force Congress to grapple willy-nilly with the uh, 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 with the long-term deficit, and as it does that, um, all roads lead to healthcare reform. Or, or, or specifically the subject of this uh, issue brief, um, reform of federal health benefit programs. And that's because other than interest on the debt, that's where the money is. That's what's driving the long-term budget projections. 
Spending on Medicare and Medicaid, this is net spending, net of premiums, is due to increase by 4.1% of GDP between now and 2050, according to the latest CBO projections. Um, Social Security will increase by 1.5%. All other spending will decrease, actually, as a share of GDP. Um, So we just thought that given um, the looming fiscal crunch, uh, it might be an opportune time to revisit some of the myths which have bedeviled and derailed the healthcare policy debate and prevented us from getting uh, a handle on federal health benefit spending um, in in the past. And, and I could briefly tick those off or I don't know. If yeah, well, why don't, why don't you... Why don't you set up the uh, uh, yeah. just v- very briefly what the, the three myths were that we focused on and uh, and then we can get into some of the um, meat meat behind those uh, arguments. Yeah, behind yeah those. sure. Well, the first um, the first is that you can control health care spending and federal health benefit spending in particular without anybody having to give anything up. Well, except maybe the pharmaceutical companies, nobody loves that. But you can control (laughs) the growth in spending without anybody having to give anything up um, simply by eliminating waste and inefficiency. We can, in effect, have more for less. Yep, that, that, that sounds like a frequent uh, federal budget claim. <laughs> yeah, that's made in other areas besides healthcare, but I, 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 I think health care is kind of the granddaddy of, uh, uh, for that one. Um, the second related myth is that, well, if you don't believe this is true, just look at other developed countries, particularly countries with national health systems. They spend a lot less than they do than we do, a lot less as a share of GDP. In fact, the uh, uh, 50%, um, the the next runners up, Switzerland and Norway, I think spend 50% per capita less than we do. Um, And yet they have better health outcomes, right? QED, slam dunk. The third myth is that you can't fix the federal cost problem. It's kind of a bait and switch, right? unless you have comprehensive national health care reform that controls costs in both the private sector and, and the public sector. Which, which kind, of prevents you from, kind of prevents well, you from doing anything, because like, you can't fix anything unless you can fix everything. Yeah, health care is going to eat the budget, but you can't do anything about that until you fix an even bigger problem. Right. Um, now, each of these myths starts with a perfectly valid premise. The U.S. healthcare system is swimming in waste and inefficiency, right? It, it's massively subsidized uh, uh, by the federal government through direct spending, through the tax subsidy for employer healthcare. You've got all these cost plus incentives, um, third-party payment systems. It's both feet on the accelerator, and this generates a huge amount of waste. Second myth: other developed countries really do spend a lot less than we do and have much better uh, uh, health outcomes by you know, various basic measures like life expectancy at birth. Um, and yeah, it might be 
easier to control federal health benefit spending as part, it might be, as part of a comprehensive public-private solution. But then starting from these basic premises, the myths leap to, to totally unfounded um, conclusions. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, wa- lot of waste in the system, um, but controlling costs will require real trade-offs for reasons we can discuss. Yes, other countries spend less than we do, but they spend less because they impose limits. Um, And yes, it might be easier to control costs as part of a comprehensive solution. Then again, it might be harder. Look at Congress's record over the past few decades in controlling health benefit, existing health benefit programs. In any case, the federal government has plenty of tools available, both through reform of direct spending and tax and regulatory policy to effectively and efficiently control federal health benefit spending without resorting to comprehensive health care reform. So, Av, you, you want to jump in, Av? Yeah, thank you, Bob. And, and so, Richard, from your estimation and, and you know, in reading the report, there were, there were several really interesting little uh, factoids, but I'm curious, just uh, based on your read, what do you think are some of the primary drivers behind these rising health costs that if we're going to focus an effort on bringing down some of these costs, where should we be looking? The first big driver is demographics, right? The population is aging. Um, As countries move through what we call the epidemiological transition, right, from it's mostly infectious diseases that kill people to it's mostly chronic diseases, well, the elderly are much more likely to suffer from chronic diseases than the non-elderly. Therefore, they consume a lot more in, in healthcare services. Uh, in the United States, for acute care services, it's nearly three to one per capita, right? Elderly to non-elderly. And for long-term care, it's 20 to one. So the elderly consume a lot more in, in healthcare services. The elderly are the fastest growing segment of the population. Um, the older the elderly are, the more healthcare they consume, and the oldest elderly age brackets, you know, 80 plus, 85 plus, are the fastest growing of all. So you put those multipliers together, both the increase in the total number of elderly beneficiaries in federal programs and the rising average age of the elderly, and you get a big impetus to health. You get a big push to healthcare spending. The CBO calculates that overall between now and 2050, demographics alone account for about a third of health benefit spending growth in Medicare. It's closer alone, leaving out Medicaid, which also includes younger people and children, right, as beneficiaries. It's closer to 50%. And that's really important because what that means, think about it for a second, what that means is you need about a third of projected spending growth just to keep delivering the same services that you're delivering today, okay, at each age to each beneficiary. That's almost baked in the cake. So what you want to be looking at is the other 70%, which is sometimes called excess cost growth. And what excess cost growth is, is the extent to which per capita healthcare costs at each age 
are rising faster than per capita GDP. It's being driven by advances in medical technologies, right, that drive up the, 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 the capital and, and labor input costs for all the healthcare services we consume. It's being driven by rising public expectations about care and cure. We expect a hell of a lot more from the health care system, both in terms of quality and quantity, than we did 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Healthcare is becoming this lifelong process of diagnostics and fine tuning in which no extra dollar spent might not have, at least to someone, some perceived benefit. And, 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 and that kind of brings us back in a way to the whole waste myth. It's a lot easier to identify pure waste in theory than it is to identify it in practice. So, Richard, if I can follow up on that, I found it fascinating. Uh, one little fact in the issue paper was uh-huh. that um, life expectancy in the United States has actually declined a bit, and we are no we're not near the top where I think what I think you said number, number 18 or maybe number 21 among our industrial industrialized nation peers. But when you look at those age 80 and above, we're actually number one. And, and so what does that tell you about, uh, I think that that's a very interesting fact and really relates to some of those costs that you're saying and the expectations of us as consumers, both, the elderly, and then a lot of times it's it's family members who are who are their their children who are trying to make uh, help them make healthcare decisions. You know when they get older in life. So what what does that tell you? Well, it says something about uh, it certainly says something about um, national priorities. Um, so let's re- just recapitulate the facts: life expectancy at birth. We are. Well, we're not at the very bottom of the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation uh, and Development Countries, but that's only because the OECD now includes um, certain not fully developed economies like Chile and Mexico and Turkey. Among high income OECD countries, we're at rock bottom. And and you're absolutely absolutely right um, that at age 80 or age 85, we're still near the top. So what's going on? Well, the fact that U.S. life expectancy has lagged other countries actually has relatively little to do with the healthcare system itself. It has to do with the fact that we have a much worse health profile. Okay. You look at obesity. Um, we are a third from bottom in the OECD. You look at diabetes, which is associated with obesity. We're third from bottom. You look at substance abuse, we're the worst. As a matter of fact, opioid-related deaths in the United States, um, are the rate is twice as high as any other OECD country except Estonia and Canada. Who is accumulating these lifestyle-related comorbidities, right? Who is at increasing risk of premature morbidity and, and death? It's young and midlife adults. It's not the elderly, okay? It's to some extent millennials. It's to a larger extent Gen X, and it's to the largest extent boomers, okay? So life expectancy in the United States is stalled not because of what's happening among the elderly, where life expectancies continue to rise, but what's happening among younger and midlife adults. 
The problem is that if you look out into the future or a problem, you know, if you think that's a silver lining, that's a silver lining that's going to go away because tomorrow's elderly or today's younger and midlife adults. You know, that's a, uh, that's, that's really kind of an alarming uh, <laughs> prospect. Uh, but I, I want to, spend our our last uh, few minutes talking about potential solutions. Um, You know, you mentioned that other countries do have tighter uh, healthcare systems, you might say, maybe not as much waste, uh, different outcomes, but they do impose tighter controls than we do is, um, I mean, is some reframing of the healthcare system in the United States essential to control costs? Yes, it is true. Um, And and people who point uh, to other countries to say that cost control really doesn't necessarily require painful trade-offs or sacrifice point out that that we spend vastly more on healthcare administration than other countries do. And that's true. But that isn't the only reason other countries spend less. They spend less because they set limits and they set limits by putting by putting a budget on what they are prepared to spend each year on health care. This is how national health care systems work, either either a global budget at the national level or clinical budgets at the level of different hospitals and, 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 and providers. And they enforce those limits um, to some extent, yes, by constraining provider incomes, um, but also to a significant extent. In other words, doctors earn less, but also to a significant extent by um, limiting uh, the volume of services uh, that are consumed. And that can be done, in other words, by ratio. Um, And that can be done either by you know, having a list of covered and uncovered procedures, um, you know, no hip replacements beyond the 75, you know, to make up a hypothetical example, probably a very real example in the UK and a few other countries. Um, or it can be done on a ad hoc triage as providers and individual, you know, patient provider encounters try to do their best to live within their limited budgets. Um, so they direct spending uh, uh, where they think it'll have the biggest cost benefit. We have no mechanisms in this country that enforce that kind of cost benefit trade-off. You don't get from A to B. You, you, you create a national healthcare system um, and you don't change the way the incentives work, right? Then you've just further subsidized this insanity. These myths are disingenuous, that they mislead the public, um, um, and that they get in the way of meaningful long-term reform. And I think we need a more more honest conversation. Well, Richard, we'll probably have you back again sometime for even more of an honest conversation on this. Uh, That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, Av Harris and I have been talking with Richard Jackson, uh, president of the Global Aging Institute, about his new paper, uh, Three Myths About Healthcare Reform. Uh, this paper 
published in cooperation with the Concord Coalition. Uh, and Richard, thanks for being on. Uh, I'll be back right after these short messages, and I'll be joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson will be discussing his new issue brief about the budgetary implications of rising inflation. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And uh, in this segment, I'm going to be talking to Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition, and Steve Robinson, Chief Economist of the Concord Coalition. And Steve, you had an issue brief uh, that we released about a week ago on the budgetary impact of rising inflation. We certainly do have rising inflation. So I wonder if you could just sort of... um, summarize at a top level what what your uh, observations were. Yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, inflation affects the budget in in a couple of different ways. Um, You know, obviously, when the economy is growing, you have higher incomes. But when you have inflation, you you also get higher incomes simply because there are, you know, prices are rising. And so, you know, at at a first level effect, uh, rising inflation causes rising incomes, not, not real, but nominal incomes, which produces more revenue for the government. Um, you know, if the economy is growing, you also have, you know, either more or less unemployment, uh, unemployment payments and, you know, various assistance programs. So if you look at it from a, from a purely budget perspective, um, inflation will increase spending, for example, on cost of living adjustments, but inflation will increase incomes and therefore increase tax revenue. And so the net effect from the budget is inflation is roughly neutral. You get higher revenue, um, you get higher spending, and those roughly offset each other. But where inflation causes a potential problem uh, beyond that is with respect to the federal deficit. Um, Historically, when inflation goes up, interest rates also go up. Obviously, people uh, don't like to lend money out and get paid back at at a rate that's below inflation because that implies that the money they get back from the loan is going to buy less than when they made the loan to begin with. They're earning, in effect, a negative real interest rate, and and no one wants to see that over a sustained period of time. So when inflation rises, uh, typically interest rates will rise. Well, given the size of the federal budget, uh, the federal deficit and the federal debt, uh, when interest rates rise, uh, you get a significant increase in, in the cost of government borrowing. And you know, as, as an example, uh, the f- current federal debt held by the public is, is over $20 trillion. So if interest rates go up 1%, you know, that's $200 billion in extra interest cost. So you can see, you know, the latest inflation numbers of seven and a half percent, you know, if hypothetically <laughs> uh, interest rates were to rise to seven and a half percent, ultimately the government interest costs would be seven percent of 20 trillion rather than the one percent that it's, it's paying currently. Uh, so, yes, inflation can have a huge impact on the federal budget because of interest rates and because of the size of the federal debt. That's the, one of the uh, dangers that folks have long warned about of running uh, big debts is that once you've got the debt, you need to finance it and you're held hostage to some extent to the possibility of sharply rising interest rates, which is 
something that we need to worry about uh, as we go forward because the debt, the borrowing isn't going to end anytime soon. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the projections from, you know, the, the White House budget office, as well as the congressional budget office is that, you know, we're running or we're facing, you know, endless uh, red ink as far as the eye can see. Um, and so that will clearly add to the debt over the next 10 years, they're predicting under current policy about another 10 trillion in debt. So the debt will go from 30, 20 trillion to 30 trillion, which means that your 1% higher interest rate instead of costing 200 billion is gonna cost 300 billion. So yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it can potentially compound and make the problem much worse. We're faced with uh, inflation for the first time in about two decades. What are sort of our, our common tools for fighting inflation? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at the historical record, literally there's been, since, since the high inflation in the late 70s, early 80s, um, inflation has been on a downward trend uh, for roughly the past 40 years. And, you know, that's in large part because of actions taken by the Federal Reserve in the early 80s under, under Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker, um, he raised interest rates um, and that was viewed widely within the economy and by the financial markets as an effort by the Fed to contain inflation. And when interest rates rose at one point, you know, the, the short-term interest rates were around uh, between you know, 10 and 10 and 12 percent. And you know, that had the effect of reducing both the, the, the economic growth rate. It caused a recession. There was, in fact, there was what they called a, a, a double dip or back-to-back uh, -back recessions in the early 80s. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a painful process by which, you know, inflation had gotten out of control and the Fed attempted to rein it in by raising interest rates, which caused a recession. And so if you look over the past 40 years, the, the, while inflation has been on a downward trend, every time there was an uptick, uh, inflation would start rising and the Fed would have to tighten the money supply and raise interest rates again. And so you see this sort of cyclical uh, process by which, you know, you try, the, the Fed tries to steer the economy, you know, between alter, al alternating cycles where, you know, interest rates are lower and, and employment is rising and the economy is doing well. But if it gets a little off track and inflation gets out of hand, the Fed will raise interest rates again. And that, of course, slows the economy. And, if, and, and again, you know, the, the historical record for the past several decades is that you know, the, the Fed has not been able to what they call navigate a soft landing mm -hmm. uh, where you know, you're, you're trying to raise interest rates and slow inflation without causing a recession. And typically, they've not been successful. They've almost always tipped the economy into a recession uh, as a result of rising interest rates. And so it's it's a you know it's a very difficult process. I mean, monetary policy is a blunt instrument, uh, and you know there's some evidence that it's become uh, less effective or, or less uh, less able to have a direct immediate effect. It's it's often referred to as a uh, a long and variable effect that when, when the Fed tries to either raise or lower interest rates, uh, that the economy responds with a lag. Mm -hmm. And that makes it difficult to tell whether you've done enough or too little or too much, because you know what, what the Fed does in, in the short term has effects on the economy in the longer term. And you know, weighing that offset and making those trade-offs is very difficult. 
So hard to find a sweet spot when it comes to monetary policy, right? Exactly. So, uh, you know, Americans are calling on President Biden to do something about inflation. Um, we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, monetary policy and tools using monetary policy to combat inflation. Does Biden have any tools to combat inflation? <laughs> well, yeah, uh, sadly, some of the tools that he had to fight inflation, he you know, perhaps made the wrong decision early in his administration. I mean, one of the biggest concerns right now, particularly in light of, of the, the military conflict in Ukraine, is, is energy prices. And, you know, one of the first things President Biden did when he came into office was sign a series of executive orders, which, you know, limited and restricted energy production in the U.S. from the Keystone Pipeline to exploration on public lands, oil, oil and gas leases, and so, you know, he, he's pushed uh, the, 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 the levers in the wrong direction. And he's, you know, been trying to, to get our allies and OPEC and others to sort of un, undo that. But, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see whether he, he sticks with the policies that he implemented when he first took office or whether the, the desire to address, you know, rising prices and particularly energy prices will cause him at all to reverse course. And, and that remains to be seen. Yeah, things like uh, releasing reserves from the uh, uh, Petroleum Reserve Fund, that, that, uh, my, my in inclination is to think that that doesn't have much of an effect. It's more symbolic than anything else. Is that? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, what's in the, I mean, they're, they're not going to deplete the entire petroleum reserve. And so the releases that they're talking about are simply not, large enough to have a significant or, or, or more than a, a very brief effect. Uh, you know, other, other countries have similar types of, of reserves, and there have been some discussion of, you know, coordinating releases, but, uh, you know, th there's more oil held in inventory, you know, at refining facilities probably around the world than there are in, in the, what, what they're talking about releasing from the strategic reserve. So I, I, it's, it's unlikely to have a significant effect. So, Steve, I guess the big question I'm curious about is, is why inflation now? Um, in your paper, you talk about how in 2008, there was a change in the way Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve conducted monetary policy. And at the time, critics then anticipated um, a fairly significant fear of rising inflation, but it didn't really materialize until, you know, here we are in 2022. Uh, and now we've got big inflation. Can you talk about that at all? Why, why didn't we see inflation before and why are we seeing it so big, so fast right now, seemingly out of the blue? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple of factors. Um, you know, the, the old saying that, that inflation is a monetary phenomenon and it's inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. And so if, if, what you, if, you, if you look at what the Fed did back in 2008, I mean, the, the Fed balance sheet prior to the financial crisis was less than a trillion dollars. And over the last you know, decade and a half, they've taken it from less than a trillion to four and a half trillion to now almost nine trillion. And all of that reflects an increase in borrowing and lending and the money supply. And so historically, you would have seen a, a rise in inflation. But I think what, what you saw, however, was not a rise in consumer prices and consumer inflation. You saw a lot of that money you know, either sitting on the sidelines because of the, the banking sector trying to 
you know, become more comfortable with both new banking regulations and capital requirements and a, a greater fear of, of financial uncertainty, and therefore banks are, are more comfortable holding larger reserves. Mm-hmm. The other thing, of course, you saw was, was as interest rates came down as a result of the money supply, uh, the monetary policy, uh, you saw a lot of that money flow into financial markets. So you had the stock prices going up, you know, astronomically, you know, from a historical perspective, if you look mm-hmm. at the rate of, you know, the value of the stock market to GDP, it's at an all-time high. Um, and, and also, if you look at um, uh, the price of housing, you know, housing prices are now higher than they were at the peak of the, of the bubble before the financial crisis. So a lot of this money, instead of going into consumer goods and services, a lot of the money was going into the financial markets. And of course, we don't, the consumer price index doesn't include financial markets. And so therefore, it didn't show up as measured inflation. But of course, because of COVID and the you know bottlenecks and, and, the, and the closings of stores and the, the supply chain issues, and of course now with 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 the, the the conflict in Ukraine, you're seeing a lot of the money spill back into the the the, the part of the market or the part of the economy that we measure inflation in. Mm-hmm. And so you know you, you had a shift in where the money was going. Um, and of course, then you had supply side issues. So you had both a monetary shock of, of too much money and a supply shock that restricted outputs of goods and services. And so, you know, it was sort of a perfect storm, I think. And, you know, that, that's why I think we're seeing it now. And we didn't see it a, a bit earlier. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking with uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director and Concord Coalition uh, Chief Economist, Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson. We're talking about the effect of inflation on the budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking to Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson about uh, the consequences of inflation on the federal budget. And, you know, Steve has uh, written uh, an issue brief on this subject. And one of the things you talked about that I think people don't appreciate is that the Federal Reserve actually pays money, it's called remittances, to the Treasury on reserves. And because the Treasury, because the Fed has really built up uh, during the pandemic, it's its so-called balance sheet, it's paying, it's actually ended up paying a lot of money into the treasury uh, through these remittances. And uh, now that looks like it's going to be turning in the other direction and actually coming down, which would have the effect of giving the, the treasury actually less revenue. I wonder if you could just try as simply as you can <laughs> to, to talk about that. And, and but But also the broader challenge that the Fed has now, it's going to start this month, um, we're, we're told, raising interest rates and, and then maybe later um, uh, lowering that balance sheet that it has uh, accumulated. You made reference to it earlier. But, but let's start with this, this subject of remittances. Um, what effect might that have on the federal budget? Yeah, sure. So, you know, historically, the Fed has conducted monetary policy by buying and selling uh, government securities. 
And when it holds those securities, it earns the interest. In other words, if, if an investor buys a government bond, he earns interest. And so when the Fed buys a government bond, it also earns interest. The difference between a regular investor and the Federal Reserve, however, is that the investor keeps the interest. <laughs> but in the case of the Federal Reserve, uh, they earn interest and they will pay their operating expenses. So the salaries and the, the costs of running the Federal Reserve but any money left over, they will give back to the treasury. And so prior to the financial crisis, they were paying the treasury about $25 billion a year, uh, which is a substantial sum. But that was when the Fed's balance sheet was less than a trillion dollars. Well, as I, I mentioned before, the Fed balance sheet has now risen to, to nearly $9 trillion. And so when they earn interest on that, and of course that, that includes mortgage-backed securities as well as government securities, but the interest that they earn, again, they pay that to the treasury. So at one point a year or two ago, they were paying the, the treasury over $100 billion a year in remittances. Now, the other thing, of course, that happened in 2008 was that the Fed was given the authority to pay interest on reserves. So instead of simply buying and selling bonds to increase or decrease reserves, the Fed is now implementing a new policy, which says, well, we have all of these reserves, and instead of buying and selling them all, we're going to pay interest to the banks on their reserves. And of course, effectively what that means is that instead of the money going to the treasury, some of the money is now gonna to go to the banks. So the bank, so, so the Fed is going to try to conduct monetary policy in a new way. And that is by paying interest on reserves, it's going to either increase or decrease the willingness of banks to lend money. And, and this is this, as you sort of suggested, this is a new world. This is not something that has ever been done before by the Federal Reserve. They implemented this policy during the financial crisis. They bought all of these assets they were trying to keep interest rates extremely low. And so there was really no cost to the Fed or to the Treasury because interest rates were so low, they weren't paying interest to the banks and all the money that they earned was going to the Treasury. Now, as the, the Fed has indicated over the last month or two, they now intend to reverse course. And instead of building up their reserves, they're going to start drawing their reserves down. And that has a couple of of, of, of uh, there's a couple of issues related to that is, and that is that as they draw the reserves down, they're trying to raise interest rates and to raise interest rates under their new policy, they're going to pay, be paying the banks higher interest rates. So that means less money to the treasury and more money to the banks. Now, if interest rates were to go high enough, they would end up exceeding the interest that they're earning. In other words, they bought all of these government bonds when interest rates were really, really low. I mean, some of their bonds are earning 1% interest or, or, or you know, mm -hmm. in, in that neighborhood. Uh, I think their average interest is about 2.5%. So if interest rates go to 3 or 4 or 5% and they have to pay all that interest to the banks, they're not earning enough money on their bonds to have any money left over to give to the treasury. They could actually end up in a situation where they're running a negative balance and you know they'll simply book that on their uh, in their balance sheet, and um, that they will not be paying any money to the treasury. And so you know you'll have a situation where you know a few years ago they were paying the treasury 100 billion, 
And if interest rates go up to four or 5%, they'll be owing the treasury a hundred billion. So there'll be no cash flow going to the treasury at all. Well, that'll be interesting to see how they pull that off. <laughs> I was going to say, well, do, we then, know what, do we know what happens when the Federal Reserve is insolvent? I mean, what, is, what does that mean? If their, their net interest income is not enough to cover their net interest expense, you know, wh- uh, what happens next? Well, I mean, you know, technically the Fed can't be insolvent, you know, because they could always just buy some more assets with Federal Reserve notes that they have complete control over. But, you know, from an accounting perspective, you know, what they do is they book the negative cash flow as a deferred asset. And what that means is they assume that in the future, they'll get a positive cash flow again, and they'll be able to pay that all off. And so they won't, they won't declare themselves insolvent. They'll simply declare themselves in, you know, we're, we're temporarily suspending the payments that we're going to make, and we'll make it up later. And, you know, as long as they have some reason to believe that, you know, things will normalize in the future, um, you know, they'll be able to offset those negative, you know, the negative balances that they would have over the next few years. And so I think that, you know, that that's their assumption. They're not, they're not going to declare themselves insolvent. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, we have this week the uh, State of the Union address. I mean, there are certainly huge, huge challenges uh, facing uh, this administration. And, you know, inflation is one of them that we've been talking about. And there are limited options for the administration right now, because a lot of it is, is, a, is a monetary policy issue, as you've been describing. But there's a lot of uncertainty about what happens with the budget and the fallout from uh, the war in Ukraine. And, uh, and then we can't forget the effect of the pandemic, which is hopefully fading, seems to be fading, but uh, but still around, and the possibility uh, of uh, another variant. So I, I mean, there are the fiscal uh, challenges abound, and it's not just fiscal challenges uh, for this nation. I don't think I've ever seen the combination of factors here um, so problematic. I, yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think it's going to have an impact on treasury auctions this year. Um, you know, bond markets don't like uncertainty in the first place. And when you look at the perfect storm events that are happening right now in terms of supply shocks, inflation, um, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, um, I know that, you know, treasury has been trying to lengthen the duration of the debt that they're offering by, you know, in, you know, selling more long-term bonds and locking in these low interest rates. But I don't think investors want to be holding long-term bonds when they have no idea or very little idea about what the future is going to look like. And so it'll be interesting to see whether the treasury shifts uh, strategy and, and moves towards shorter ter- shorter duration bonds uh, to, to finance federal government operations or whether they stick to their desire to issue longer duration securities and basically pay the interest costs associated with that, you know, that the, that the higher net interest rates that they're going to have to offer in order to make that debt attractive to investors. I have no idea how this is going to play out. Yeah, I, 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 I suspect that those decisions are getting a lot of attention behind the scenes, but it's awfully they have so much to contend with. And there's like you said, there's so much uncertainty. I, I don't know how policymakers make decisions in this era of uncertainty. 
Yeah, I think there's plenty of uncertainty to go around. I mean, you know, the Fed is trying to navigate, you know, unwinding a new untested policy. You know, we're trying to deal with with the conflict in in, in the Ukraine. Uh, it, it's just, you know, I mean, the administration faces a whole host of of difficult challenges, and I think the economy overall. I mean, you know, you've got the pandemic, as as, as Tori was saying, you've got the pandemic, you've got you know, supply issues, you've got inflation, you've got financial market uncertainty. It, it's just, uh, it, w- I think we're all in for a very, very challenging period over the next several months, if not the rest of the year. Well, um, that's all the time we have for this week on that ominous note. On that note. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, this is your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm talking to Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We're talking about the confluence of events uh, leading to inflation and great uncertainty and the possible effects on the economy and the budget. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Thank you.